why is he selling uh, mutual funds to his daughter? <laughs> and and by using this deceptive language, is he going to get in trouble with the Galactic Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? <laughs> I- Welcome to season two of Star's End, a podcast dedicated to Foundation, Isaac Asimov's classic science fiction series. Both the books and the TV series currently streaming on Apple TV+. In season one, we read through the three books of Asimov's original Foundation series with an enthusiastic but critical eye. Now we've turned that eye to our screens to watch and discuss the show. I'm John, and I'll be one of the voices guiding you through this story of the fall and rise of galactic empires. I'm Dan. We're Foundation fans who love the novels, but aren't afraid to critique them. We're hoping to love Apple's new series, and aren't afraid that it's an adaptation that changes some things. But if we see something that rubs us the wrong way, we'll let you know. My name is Joseph. You joined us on our nostalgic journey through this 80-year-old classic. Now join us on a new adventure as we see whether galactic civilization and this new interpretation of Asimov's story will evolve or die. This week on Star's End, we get the rollicking episode nine of Foundation with a ton of action and a lot of twists and turns. We're going to have a lot to talk about. We don't have a guest, but that's okay because we've got so much to talk about in this episode that it's going to take up all the time we can uh, we can talk about it. I did want to go back and talk just very briefly about brother day and his spiritual slash non-spiritual experience in the previous episode Um, i think we all said that it looked like he was having a a spiritual awakening but then at the end he went right back into his usual brother dayness and made up the story of a vision that he saw and obviously had zephyr halima murdered and was very smug about it at the end but I was thinking about it, and I, I feel like it's almost like a missed opportunity for Brother Day, that, that the experience that he had was just on the edge of being like a legitimate spiritual experience. But when he didn't get a vision, he gave up on it. And you could see how affected he was by the fact that he didn't get a vision when Demerzel said, oh, it would be so, I would be so sad for someone who didn't get a vision. And then you see him in the spaceship and he apparently very uh, much under distress thinking about how he didn't get a vision. And I feel like he was, he was, could have gone either way and that maybe if he had gotten a vision, he would have really had a, a real spiritual awakening. But because he didn't, he kind of angrily turned his back on it and went back to the usual pattern of brother day. And I wanted to see if, if, if you guys had the same feeling that I had or not. Well, I, I think uh, I didn't have that feeling at first, but I think it's a, it's an intriguing real uh, reading of the scene. And uh, sure. I mean, I'd, I'd be open to that as an interpretive possibility. Uh, one among many, um, we don't have any reporting of his thoughts at the time. We just have that image of him, alone in this kind of empty echoing and colored desaturated cave. So we're, I think it's, you know, it's open for us to, to speculate as to what's going through his mind. And, and I like that kind of imagining of one possibility, John, I think that's certainly very plausible. Yeah, that, that, um, that would be nice. It is plausible. I, I think you guys remember, I wasn't, when I watched it second time through, I was much less convinced that what he was what what he was going through was genuine. But that would be nice. I guess maybe we'll really get an idea when we see him next week, and you know, in particular, see how he reacts to what's going on with Brother Don. That will be very interesting. I mean, we only saw a brief glimpse of him in this episode. He does look in that brief glimpse. He looks 
changed, older and thoughtful. But maybe I'm doing that thing where you, you know, and Lee Pace really, as an actor, brings this out in you, this, you, you want to root for him, you know, he, he gets you on his side. And even when he's the villain, you, you, you want to root for him. And maybe that's what I'm doing. Maybe I'm just kind of rooting for the home team here. I don't know. Yeah, well, maybe. Well, I mean, those last moments of ep episode eight, you know, I mean, you can tell that thought was really festering. And so maybe. Maybe. Well, maybe we'll find out in, in episode. It feels like they've got more than one more episode to go here, but they're they're They've only got one more episode in the season. And um, if these last two episodes are any indication, it's going to be um, it's going to be a real barn burner. Could be. Do we know who's directing this next episode? Well, we do know that Roxanne Dawson will be will be directing more episodes of the show because she's she tweeted that the reason she's not at DST this weekend is that she's in Ireland directing some episode from season two. Yeah, that's exciting because these last two episodes that she did were so damn good. They really were. They really were. Kind of hoping. Think, I was kind of hoping she's doing the episode ten, but we don't know. We don't know. Although I, I do have to say that while these episodes have been lots of fun and very interesting and exciting, there's not a lot of Asimov in these episodes. Yeah, I mean, in fact, there's, um, I mean, if we're still on the last episode, there was a lot of stuff I didn't mention last week. There's a lot of stuff that seemed very anti-Asimovian in that, like Gail having intuition that, that put her beyond the mathematics and driving the starship was like luck. I mean, I actually went back and read some of the stuff that Asimov wrote on, was in a New York Times article called The Threat of Creationism. I don't see him being a beyond science guy the way Arthur Clarke could be a beyond science guy. And that was all over, all over that last episode. Although, to be fair, he does have mind-reading robots and people with mentalic skills and the mule. Although I guess he does that in a very within-science world. Yeah. It's not supernatural. It's just natural in a way that doesn't actually exist at the moment in our universe. Yeah, whereas his uh, childhood's end is fairly supernatural. Yeah, no, it is. Although, again, as we've talked about before, Clark did sort of disclaim that as not necessarily being the views of the author. Yeah, but he also remained fascinated with it for the rest of his life because he was doing all those um, mysterious worlds programs too, so. Yeah, and 2001, you know, has the same theme of humanity. Yep graduating to another another level mm -hmm. dan anything from last week that you wanted to go back over before we talk about episode nine no i'm good so let's talk about episode nine <laughs> and there's so much going on in episode nine that i i'm just going to go through my notes and just kind of talk about the the events of the episode and then we can talk about what we think they mean so we start with a voiceover from Gail. She's back, despite the fact that she's in the that she's in the sleep pod. And there's an interesting theme uh, in Gail's voiceovers, which have to do with how history is recorded. Later on, she's going to talk about how historians get to add and subtract from stories. And because this is her story, she gets to decide what's added and subtracted, which I thought was very interesting. It, it kind of sets her up as an unreliable narrator. And then and it, it calls into question, in some ways, the things that we're seeing. And I was very curious about why they're doing that. They don't really answer that question. It's really going to be an open question. But it was very pointed, very, very explicit that, that Gail is saying that. And I, I'm not sure why. But the first scene is a flashback to Salver's childhood, in which she talks about where did we come from? Her father tells her about various theories of single planet origins, which actually does harken back to the books. And he does say to her in discussing the situation with the empire and the star bridge and the destruction of Anacreon and Thespis, violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. So we come back to that. Mm -hmm. uh, then we go to Sal jumping, seeing some stuff, some crazy stuff. We see Farah having a really hard time, but Sal being okay they arrive somehow at terminus that was a surprise and salver discovers lewis plugged into the system i have to admit i found it somewhat implausible that lewis figured out how to do that in the about a second and a half that he had to do that but okay lewis plugged himself in sacrificed himself so that he could wish them home 
as Salver says. And we see in his hand Salver's lucky coin. And we see all the Anacreons splayed out over the ship. We're going to wonder later on how Farah and Rowan, the other Anacreonian, came through that uh, supposedly unseeable experience with their wits intact. But okay. I mean, we, we don't, we expect that from Salver because we saw it from Gale. We didn't really expect it from Farah and Rowan, but it's important to the story. Then we, we visit Dawn and Azura uh, as Dawn, Brother Dawn is, is planning to leave the empire, uh, the, the, the palace. Uh, I wrote down here, not going to end well. And then we have a confrontation between Dawn and Dusk at the mural. Uh, Dusk is very sinister. And it turns out that the mural that he painted was a colorblindness test. And Brother Dawn fails the colorblindness test. And he is busted and knows it. Uh, we go back to Salver having jumped. And now she's going to jump over to the beggar, which she sees. And she's, she's at Terminus. The Thespian Lancers have been dragged in there quote-unquote, quantum wake. Uh, she sees Hugo's ship, the beggar, and she jumps over there. Uh, we go back to Dawn, who has now decided he's got to escape. He goes to some water treatment plant, comes out in the scar with all the Trantorians. Uh, he does have, as we've said before, the most recognizable face in the galaxy. He trades his Imperial aura for a coat, and he's looking for Azura. Then we go back to Salver who discovers Hugo, who comes up with a story. Uh, again, I found this somewhat implausible of how he saw that the Invictus was going to jump and he hit himself with a sedation stick so that he could survive the jump. And also he told all the other Thespians, hey guys, you better take a sedation stick too. And I wrote down here, I want one. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I need, I have some insomnia sometimes that I Seriously. really I could use one of those sedation sticks. Those would be great. Go down to the CVS and pick up uh, you know, a pack <laughs> of sedation sticks. Yeah, you, you, right. you can get them, but I don't think you can get them at the CVS. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to gloss over that implausibility. Then we're down in the scar with Brother Dawn. And again, I wrote down, not going to end well. He shows up at Azura's apartment. He's a day early. He's going to go take a shower. He comes out and she starts shooting at him. So there we go. Our theory that she's in some kind of a plot, certainly getting vindicated here. And oh my gosh, who shows up? But a copy of Brother Dawn, as Brother Dawn is passing out, he sees the face of a copy of himself. The Dawn in the Iron Mask, I guess. <laughs> we go back to Hugo and the Thespans and we notice the Missing Farah, she somehow escaped from all this. Uh, back on Terminus, everybody's out cold. And uh, Salvor goes to the vault. She finds her mom having tried to crawl up to the vault. She's got the prime radiant. And Salvor is going to solve that Rubik's Cube and turn off the field. Everyone's going to wake up. The, the vault goes from, uh, it turns golden and plants itself in the ground. I don't know. We see Farah on board one of the Thespian Lancers. <laughs> she said, this was a great scene. She's, there's two pilots of the Thespian Lancer. And she says to one of them, or she says to both of them, who is this ship slave to? And one of them raises her hand. She shoots the other one. And then she says, all right, turn over the ship to my control, or I'm going to shoot you too. The Thespian does turn over the ship to Farah. And then we pan out. And we hear a gunshot anyway. So Farah has obviously gone all the way on that one. Now we're back to the conversation between Dawn and pseudo Dawn. Uh, they're taking Dawn's nanites out. Uh, we find out interestingly that the changes in Brother Dawn that made him different from Brother Day and Brother Dust were done by the underground not necessarily by Demerzel, although I, I have a theory. We'll get back to that. And all of a sudden, coming down these uh, zip lines come the Imperial troops, and they kind of kill everybody. Fake Cleon's throat is suddenly cut, and it's, it's Shadow Master Obrecht with his cloak comes out. I was kind of wondering whether the nanites that uh, Pseudo Dawn has might save him, but it, it doesn't look like they did. 
they have a big sinister conversation between dawn and dusk where dawn's uh, dusk says why would we ever want to look at your face again and dawn says it my face is your face he finally says look uh, isn't it really up to brother day and they do agree it's up to brother day to, to make the decision but he's probably not going to be in a super good mood after coming back from the maiden uh we go back to terminus where there's a standoff between the Thespans and the Anacreons. At first, the Anacreons surrender, but then Farah shows up in her Thespan Lancer. I loved, by the way, the remote control devices they have, where they they can they can control the ship with their uh, you know, with their with with this remote control device. Very very cool. I did find that the Thespans had a um, they were coated somewhat fascist thought with the long you know leather coats and. Uh, uh, that was interesting. Whereas the, the Anacreons are sort of South Asians, the, uh, the Thespans, I, I can't help but think they're somewhat Nordic and Nordic in the, in the Nazi way. I'm still left wondering how Farah and Rowan survived. There's a big standoff. The vault opens. Farah, who has come down in, in her Thespan Lancer, starts shooting at the vault. And Salver picks up the, the Grand Huntress's bow and shoots Farah in the throat. And out of the vault steps Harry Seldon, saying, oh, look, Thespans and Acreons, Termini, maybe we can all get this thing done together. And I just wrote, what? <laughs> and I mean, wow, I was just, I, I was just blown away by all of this action, all of the twists and turns. I'm gonna be really sad when episode 10 is over. And we're done with this thing. So I will, having having just spoken for a few minutes, I will open it up to you guys. What did you think of this episode? Actually, one of the one of the high points for me was just that moment where um, Salvor offers the Invictus to all three groups, suggesting is suggesting that they come together and they work together. And because if you were guys called me saying that it seemed like the only satisfying solution to this would have to be Salvor coming up with a political solution, not a action-packed violent solution. And I didn't see it coming and there it was. That was kind of awesome. I, I expect at the beginning of the next episode Harry is going to go, and of course you know now that you have to all work together. <laughs> right. <laughs> well just this, you know, it it isn't it isn't exactly the way the first crisis is solved in the books, but given the scale of departures from the books that we've seen so far, this is, this is pretty close to a kind of psychohistorical understanding of what could have happened. Um, now we'll have to wait and see like why Harry Selden would have predicted that it came out quite this way. But uh, after all this time wondering what's in the vault, having it be Harry Selden stepping out, you know, it feels like, well, of course it should have been yeah. Harry in there. Uh, what what else could it have been? And so this, you know, it's it was fun. It was it was surprisingly satisfying. It, it was. I I had a little trouble with the whole Invictus situation, which still seems extremely random. And Salver having this gut feeling that the Invictus is really important to solving the crisis. There's just no way that psychohistory could have predicted that. So over on the official podcast, Goyer this week said that somehow something like Harry knew the Invictus was out there and, and knew it was uh, going to appear, oh my God. <laughs> which itself is a, is a yes. little bit of a question. Yeah. No. The better answer is that the three of them teaming up would have worked fine even without the yes, Invictus. Yes, that right. is the better answer. Just like in the yeah. books the religion would have protected the foundation even if they hadn't found the weenus. Yes. That was just a bonus, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty poor answer, I gotta say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because, yeah, that, that just dovetails into our complaints about how, you know, this crisis couldn't have come about just by random. I mean, if there's any credibility to psychohistory, right, it had to have been something else because this was a random event. The, the damn ship was rolling dice and deciding where it was going to go. Right. I mean, it could have gone literally anywhere. Yeah. And, and if it had been, there would, there's going to be some kerfuffle with the three races and they need to figure out how to work together or they will figure out how to work together. And that's how it's going to go forward. I could buy that. 
I have a much harder time buying. Harry knew a random ship was going to th- show up. Let's call it our headcanon. That the, yes. that, the, that the ship the ship just didn't matter. The ship didn't you could have matter. done without the ship. <laughs> I have to say that this is a pet peeve of mine. This idea of uh, creators kind of adding con, uh, con- content ex cathedra, as it were. Mm-hmm. That David Goyer gets on a podcast and explains to you what he really meant was going on. Um, mm. I don't like that. I didn't like Ridley Scott doing that with Blade Runner. Like, like my feeling is if they want to, if they want to tell you something, they should do it in the show. They should not mm-hmm. resort to extra DVD commentary or whatever. If they don't tell you in the show, then there's something missing from the show, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah, honestly, now that I've, now that I know that Goyer gave that answer, you know, I mean, one of my you know fundamental things that I'm thinking of when I'm watching things, because of course, you know, I, I grew up loving comic books, and you know, was was just incensed when I would see differences when they would they would get around to filming something. Uh, but you know, for the last many many years, my standard has always been: Are they treat, treating the source material with respect? You know, like there was a Captain America movie in in, in the '90s where. You know, the Red Skull was was arbitrarily Italian instead of German, which, you know, uh, makes no sense. And you, you, you get the feeling of the creators going, yeah, this is just crap for kids. We can do whatever, whatever the hell we want to. Yeah, thinking that you could psychohistorically predict the Invictus. Yeah, no, that may fail that test. It does. It definitely fails that test. What about the underground and their brilliant plan? To replace Brother Dawn with another Brother Dawn, what do you what do you think of that? Could I request that we call him False Dawn? False Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, I had a good name for him. What was it? What... Oh, Brother Daybreak. That's what I called him. <laughs> uh, but yeah, False Dawn's good too. I think it wouldn't have been an idiotic plan if they had gotten to it soon enough that nobody had noticed that he was broken. Right, but we know that Brother Dust noticed it because he painted a colorblind oh, desk yeah, on the wall. So the to me, the idea that Brother da, Brother Don leaves the palace left-handed and colorblind, and he comes back right-handed and not colorblind, and they just go, <laughs> oh, okay, that sounds great. Like, they were going to liquidate that Brother Dawn anyway yep. and take out a new pickle from the jar. Yeah, so I don't understand this multi-decade plan they had, which was, in my opinion, absolutely moronic. I, I think this is one of those examples of that, that happened fairly frequently in, in TV and movies of where you have a plot that is thrilling as you watch it forward as the audience. But then when you stop and think about it and say, is this the plan that any sane group of conspirators would have come up with? The answer would have to be no. I, I think we've had in, there's been a few movies now and then out of Hollywood where like a, a president is replaced by a lookalike. And every time it's played as a comedy because the premise is so ridiculous. And I, I think it, it doesn't really pass the logic test of what, <laughs> what is feasible in real life. I mean, they were planning this thing for literally for decades. Literally for decades, yeah. But it does kind of make me wonder, like, how did they get Cleon's DNA out of the palace? I mean, we had all had the idea that Demerzel was the puppet master. She still could be, actually. She could be behind all of this. I think she has to be. And I'll tell you why. Just narratively, the, the, the plotters need an inside person or an inside robot. Right. Um, <laughs> it. Among among characters we've been introduced to, you know, it, it's not Azura. She's working in the garden right under the emperor's eye. It's it's not the Cleons themselves. It's not Shadowmaster Obrecht, who's there breaking the damn thing up. And so who's left? I mean, it, it's just Demerzel. And, you know, they could, if they wanted to, just show us next week a new character who happens to be a genetic technician that we've never seen before. But narratively, that would feel cheap and stupid. 
there's only one choice left. It's Demerzel. Right. And, and the other thing, of course, is that it's Demerzel who raises every brother Dawn. Yeah. Uh, the other brother. Okay. I, I could, I suppose I could get that brother day and brother dusk don't notice the differences, but Demerzel is, is Mary Poppins here. She's raising this child. You're going to tell me she doesn't notice that the child is left-handed and, and colorblind. There's absolutely no way. Yeah, there's, there's absolutely no way, but I think that's a point where maybe the zeroth law could play in, right? I mean, well, because, you know, she, she, she was helpless. uh, Well, okay, she appeared to be helpless against, you know, the orders to murder Zephyr Halima. I I found that very, I found that very convincing. Maybe the zeroth law could kick in because she wasn't explicitly told to, to, to reveal this. She notices it, but she realizes that this could help bring down the dynasty and the zeroth law allows her to keep it to herself. Joseph, I think, unfortunately, we're going to find out that David Goyer punted on the three laws of robotics and decided uh, yeah. that, they, that they just don't fit. And that what is fitting is Demerzel's programming to be loyal to the emperors. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think the zeroth law it really applies. Well, maybe left, but I mean, we were, uh, I, I was about ready to say, well, there's nothing to psychohistory in this show <laughs> a few episodes ago, and now it seems to be coming back around. So that's true. It's a good point. But again, I mean, we're still left either way. There's no way that Demerzel, whether, whether it was the zeroth law or not, there's mm-hmm. no way that she didn't notice these differences, whether she was responsible for them or not. She must have noticed them and not said anything about it. Yeah, that's absolutely true, I think. So if she is in on the plot with this resistance faction, does that tell us anything more or do we have any guesses as to why Demerzel is part of the resistance or what her her plan is or where this came from? Well, it might explain why the resistance's plan was so pathetically bad. (laughs) the reason being that demerzel did not want the plan to succeed oh (laughs) right so she set them up with a plan that was doomed from the beginning oh so she's she's sabotaging the resistance from the inside and not telling the cleons I know it sounds crazy, but I'm trying to salvage the idea that there's a multi-decade resistance that comes up with a plan that is frankly so stupid. It just like, I mean, I'm just imagining this new brother Dawn showing up at the palace and brother Day and brother Dusk just going, okay, yeah, that's great. You, you got out of the palace, you frolicked a little bit and now you're fine. I mean, oh, and you know, we have these extra brother dogs. We're not going to bring them in. No, no way. Yeah. No way. Yeah. It would absolutely yeah. just punt on him and yeah. bring yeah. out a, a fresh one. Yeah, that's like, I was never head of Gestapo. I make joke. <laughs> Money <laughs> Python reference. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And now let's come back to, again to this. Uh, I, I don't know what to say about it, but Gail doing the voiceover and talking about adding and subtracting and i get to decide what's added and subtracted so setting herself up as an unreliable narrator here i I was curious whether you guys made note of that whether you thought that it was significant actually it seemed very odd given that the 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 context was all about salvor i mean and we actually went back to make we actually went back and checked and made sure that that was gail who was doing the voiceover and not salvor at that point because that would have made that would have been something you know very different this is my story this is my story she's not even in this episode um and i mean yeah probably that's a broader context i think that the uh confession that she's an unreliable narrator is in fact proof that the story actually unfolded just the way asimov wrote it (laughs) there you go (laughs) yeah no seriously i don't know what to make of it in detail but um I think one thing it does bring home, I don't know if we've mentioned this before, but the fact that Gail is actually, as of right now, in, in episode nine, frozen, you know, suggests to us that Gail from the beginning has been telling this story from a point far in the future, yep. possibly, you know, after the thousand years has ended, but you know, retrospectively, she is telling this story in um, in a way that 
you know, maybe it's going to allow us for some more twists and turns after we get some further revelation about where her character arc goes. Might take a few seasons for that to play out, though. They've certainly left themselves all the room in the world to do whatever they want with Gail. Yeah. Yep. And then we see her picture in the in the coming attractions for the next episode, too. Well, so. I think there's some flashbacks, right? I think we're going to see some flashbacks, although I, honestly, I don't know that these trailers can often be very misleading as to what you're actually seeing. Well, that's absolutely true. Although, actually, you know, I think I want to endorse Dan's theory there because, you know, what we know about Gail from the book is that um, they wrote a uh, they wrote a biography of Harry. Maybe what the maybe the series is all that bi- all that biography. <laughs> it's highly fictionalized. <laughs> Docudrama. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like that damn thing on the last episode of uh, of of uh, Enterprise. Yeah, no, that's definitely not canon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's all a holodeck thing. That's that's, that's right. Real. Yeah. All right. Let me bring up another uh, another topic that I thought was very interesting. When Dawn and Dusk are confronting each other in Azura's apartment, which, by the way, was really nice. I would love an apartment like that. That was a beautiful in the scar. She's got a beautiful apartment uh, on a gardener's salary, I assume. <laughs> very nice. Anyway, Dusk, uh, Dawn says something about empathy and Dusk absolutely sneers and snickers at him about the very concept of empathy. I just wanted to to see if you guys noticed that moment and what you thought of it. A brilliant acting job. Lovely. It's lovely when you see an actor given a chance to play against themselves, not just as a double, but but actually doing a, a very different character, right? And the mockery of himself just just really brought it home. So I, I was just enjoying it as a pure moment of theater. I mean, whatever whatever else you think, the performances of this in this show have been just spectacular. Uh, the Cleons have all done a fabulous job. I think that uh, Farah, for example, has done a, an extremely good job at Kubrasate, and not just because she's she's interacted with our podcast a little bit. But because she's done a fantastic job. I mean, I think that's really improved the show tremendously. That, yeah. That they've really gotten a lot out of the cast. And I might as well, you know, let me give a shout out to Terrence Mann here as well. We've yeah, been, absolutely. We've been gushing over Lee Pace justifiably. He's been fantastic. Terrence Mann has has just brought an amazing amount of life as well into Brother Dusk. And especially in this scene here, you just feel that kind of old, shouty rage of the Lee Pace Brother Day 13 in the Brother Dusk. Yeah, and the scene where they're in front of the mural yeah. and he says, take your time and yeah. examine the details. Just very sinister and very, you know, the rage underneath that was, was yeah. tremendous. You can see that this is the same guy who ordered two worlds exterminated, basically. Yeah. <laughs> What else? I, I, I thought that the uh, one thing that I thought was actually quite humorous was the lieutenant of the Anacreons who's left behind is named Freestone, which just struck me as just right out of British colonialism, you know, that you'd have a kind of a South Asian person with a name like Freestone. <laughs> and I, I'm not sure why they did that or whether they were aware of that, but it, it just it I couldn't help but kind of get that that feeling that you've got an, a South Asian guy and you name him Freestone. I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I thought about it enough that I wrote it down in my notes and, and just uh, maybe that was unintentional on, on the part of the, uh, of the creators. I'm not, I'm not sure if there's a question in that or anything. We are left with Harry coming out of the, out of the vault, the, the shocking scene where Salver kills Farah with an arrow to the throat. Prior to that, Rowan, the number two in Acreonian, had gone over to Farah and pointed his gun at her and told her to stop. And he, you know, he's clearly decided that, that the right side of history is to is to work with uh, the Termini, as Harry calls them, and the and the uh, Thespans. And I was sad to see Farah go. I mean, that that was a great character. She really brought a lot of kind of just insane rage to the show. And this desire for revenge, I mean, single-minded desire for revenge 
onto the show. She didn't really, she said explicitly, she didn't care about humanity. She didn't care about anything. She just wanted her revenge. And it was a great foil for Salvor Harden, I thought. Yeah, spectacular character, but it's a character that, that doesn't work if that's the solution. Well, and so they had to get rid of her, and they did. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm just impressed so much with, I, I guess it's both the writing and the acting job that Kubra Sate brings to it. Like, in, in any other normal series, when you have someone, even who with considerable cause for hatred like insists on massive genocidal destruction of of planets you know that's not a character with nuance at all and that that's just like as evil a a bad guy as you can get but you know we weren't rooting for farah but but she just holds sympathy so well and i think that's one of the reasons why we all feel like we're missing her no, I was just saying, except that, you know, you, you say that that's not a nuanced character, except that that exact same thing you say applies to Brother Day. Yeah, true. And he is certainly, he is certainly a nuanced character. No, I think it is a nuanced character, actually. I mean, although, although she's consumed by her rage and desire for revenge, it, it is a complicated character. And, you know, I read an interview with Kubra Sate about it, and she said, you know, she was nothing like that in real life. And she kept, <laughs> one hopes so. Yeah. She kind of had the desire to go over to her castmates and kind of give them a hug and say, you know, this is just the character. Uh, this isn't me. But she couldn't because COVID protocols meant uh, that they couldn't do that. They had to stay separated. And she spent a lot of time working with Leah Harvey, who is Salver Harden, and you know that they played off against each other. And uh, it was just a very interesting, a very interesting interview with her about playing a character like Farah and uh, and we do we do feel some sympathy for her and we want her to be better you know if nothing else again as I said just a minute ago I I think that the um, the show has really benefited from individual performances Mm -hmm. that are uh, extremely compelling and you know this this character of the Cleons this this tripartite Cleon which is nowhere near anything that was in the book it's just worked extremely well in my opinion yeah it's probably a highlight of the series like i mean as as a tv show considered completely apart from its status as an adaptation it's an amazing element and it's driven a lot of what's really fantastic about the pace has got to win some kind of an award for this performance i mean he's just he's just I just want to see, I, I was, the, the only thing I don't like about episode nine is that we didn't get any of him in it. I, I just, I'm just fascinated by this character and I want to see more of it. I'm sure he'll be back in episode 10. Well, I have, hope so. Have some words to say to young brother Don. <laughs> yes, that's going to be interesting. What they're going to do with brother Don. I mean, the, the central idea, of course, is that they're going to eliminate him and replace him with a pickle but (laughs) maybe not maybe not we did see in a very brief preview we see azura and brother day sitting in the garden having a conversation and i'm i'm fascinated by that and i i really want to know what happens that's curious um yeah actually um azura's uh performance is one that is a little bit odd to me because there was no, there was a lot of reason to suspect subterfuge, but it just in her behavior, there was no hint of subterfuge. And then once the thing, once the whole thing breaks, she was a little bit stilted. And I don't, I don't, I don't know what to make of that. Oh, well, I think Goyer has said that apart from Jared Harris playing Harry Selden, none of the other cast was reading scripts beyond the one they were filming at the time. Hmm. Uh, and so it's possible that, you know, she was playing Azura. She thought Azura was just going to be this sympathetic kind of love interest and didn't know her own character arc. At least I, without knowing more about the details, right. I don't think anything has been announced, but I think that's possible. It was interesting to see when Dawn shows up at her apartment, her hairstyle is different. And he's sort of looked at women and seen similar hair and kind of thought he was looking at Azura. And she had that very kind of slick back hair that made her look more sinister. But yeah, but 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 Joseph, just to, to your point about, you know, not having any hint 
Well, I mean, we all suspected Zura of not being straight with Brother Dawn. And that's in the that's in the record. We can go back to previous yeah. episodes of the podcast, and we were all we were all thinking she was. I was the game. I was suspicious, but I didn't see it in her performance. Yeah, about that scene, I was a little bit. I guess it's meant to be a surprise that uh, Shadow Master Obrak appears out of invisibility. Ha- have we seen anything in the here before that suggests invisibility is? technology in this world well we saw him disappear into the forest after he found the other three hands. yeah oh i didn't we, we i didn't did remember that at all device yes wait, that, wait, where is his cloaking device shadow master is it like is it the the ring of sauron i mean what i uh... guess he has something <laughs> like that something like the imperial aura he's got a thing that makes him invisible but they did show us that as joseph said when he found the three other gilly raptors or whatever they there you go that's that, that's closer that was closer than i got <laughs> <laughs> so we 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 were shown shadow master obrecht's shadow uh, abilities uh, so we shouldn't have been terribly surprised by it when when we saw it show up although i was one additional thing i loved about him if you notice the the boot print in in blood yeah. that that was the the tread on that. He's wearing work boots. He is like, and I, you know, and the rest of he's he has a very nice suit on. It's kind of like a narrow jacket or something, but kind of spacey. But then those like heavy tread, like clotting work boots. I'm just wondering if he there's often a danger of him slipping in blood pools that he has to wear those, or what's going on with those shoes? I don't know, but he's a serious dude. Like when when Brother Don has been busted and, and shadow master Obrick comes and says, brother dusk needs to see you now. And brother Dawn is kind of prevaricating and saying, I need an extra minute. And shadow master Obrick is having none of it. You know, we are both servants. I mean, he's a very yeah. serious, scary guy. So yeah. I thought he did a very good job. There. Yeah. Serious shoes for a serious guy. Yeah. You got to have serious shoes. <laughs> Oh, and since you mentioned that scene, let me just say I also love the little detail of Don walking past the holographic heads of the older Cleons and then each head in turn just kind of turning around and glaring at him. Oh, that, that was, was just great. And wonderfully I, cute. And then he runs into his bedroom and he opens a drawer and there's a bunch of like nondescript cloth things in there. And I thought that was great because like everyone has a little drawer where there's something that you don't even know what it is anymore and you're like you know he's trying to pack in a hurry and he opens this drawer and just like what the hell is it even even is this stuff it was like like nondescript little cloths i i love that the great touch and i don't know how they're going to wrap all of this up in a single episode i'm i need a lot more than one more episode to get this stuff done yeah i have a a, a, a concern or a little, little bit of worry because i've seen other you know, miniseries do this sort of thing. I'm afraid they're going to wrap up Terminus in a very, very glib, short way. And they're going to wrap up the Cleons thing in a very, very real short way. And then they're going to spend the rest of the, then they're going to spend the rest of the episode building up and, and trying to trying to create some tension for season two. I don't want to see that at all. I think it's, it's almost destined that we are going to have some mysteries resolved and others at least one big new thing to end us on a cliffhanger to wait there's for season be, two. Oh yeah. Huge season two. Um, well, I'm sure, they... but I don't want to see them. In, I don't want to see them spend too much of the episode doing that. Yeah. Hopefully they will do it in a way that is respectful to the time that viewers mm-hmm. been putting in watching the series and following along so far. We'll have to wait and see. I do want to say that Louis Pyren did turn out to be Dan uh, every bit the hero that you that you expected him to be. Where he mm-hmm. somehow, in about a second, figured out how to plug himself into that ship and get it to leap back to Terminus and sacrifice himself. While well, I because ex- he's been reading the encyclopedia. that he's been writing he's been writing he's been writing i mean he in the last episode like when they found the control room you know he was the one to explain how it all worked so you know i guess he had found the article or the materials for the article he was writing on the invictus so good good chance that they decided to bring him along 
Well, and there was some line in there about um, the circuits being intuitive and would connect connect themselves to the right bits of the brain. Seems like a very easy explanation, but they did lay that out there. Well, they certainly didn't so, do a neat job of it. And the truth is, they jumped basically not very far, right? They were in the same system, and they jumped to another spot in the same system and dragged the Thespian Lancers and the beggar with them. Uh, but they didn't really go all that far, like sort of half an AU or something like that. Um, I don't know. All I know is that this episode, I, I could watch this episode over and over again. And I probably will watch it again because it was just absolutely action-packed. And I have to agree with those of our colleagues who said, well, it may not be, it may not be strictly foundation as Asimov wrote it, but it's a hell of a lot of fun and just a great episode to watch. And I, I think I'm, I think I'm there for that. Yeah. Concur. I, I would agree. Well, you know, and they're so far, they haven't convinced me that they're completely disrespectful of the source material. No, so I don't I'm think they're happy. disrespectful. I don't think they're disrespectful. I think they've added a bunch of stuff and they've changed a bunch of things. I mean, we can have our arguments about the laws of robotic, uh, which they do seem to have the, may, maybe there they've trampled a little bit. They're the suggestions of robotics. The suggestions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the vague guidelines of robotics. <laughs> but I mean, I have to say that after being very disappointed in episode seven, mm -hmm. I loved episode eight and episode nine. And oh, yeah. I hope that they continue that through episode 10. Yeah, me too. I mean, that that's those are the high points. Eight and nine so far are the high points of the um, of the series. We thought it started strong. If it, if it can end on, in that, on that kind of strength, that's impressive. Well, is there anything else that, that you guys want to bring up? That Yeah. So one thing, because we see Harry come out of the vault. Is this the hologram Harry we've been waiting to see? Right? We've seen AI Harry. Is this the hologram Harry we've been waiting to see? Is this I've designed my own coffin Harry? Is it some other variation? Any ideas? I think it could be actually the real Harry. The real Harry, like the... the, the the, the reanimated corpse of so zombie Harry <laughs> zombie not zombie Harry <laughs> Harry who was kept alive by his specially designed coffin it's possible um, I don't know I would guess that this Harry is in communication with the Harry that has been talking to Gale huh? with the hollow Harry has been talking to Gale but is it the real physical Harry I don't know I don't know. I mean, they never answered what happened to the body. And they they played that up with a coffin that he designed himself. So, I, you know, it's possible. Possible. Does it matter, really? No, but I'm still curious. Well, one additional thing to add into this mix is that, again, on the official podcast, Goyer mentioned that there's still something else in the vault. Mm. So mm. after Harry walks out of this little egg or something, there's, I don't know, is it a holographic placenta that's left behind that's going to be coming forth soon or it's race <laughs> i mean that vault is like the ultimate MacGuffin generator <laughs> oh yeah yeah I could, anything out of I, it could, a new yeah. MacGuffin every season yeah but it sure looked pretty <laughs> especially when it turned gold that's right very nice very nice it almost seems anticlimactic to ask if there are any moments of levity, but I'm going to ask anyway. <laughs> <laughs> because it seems like you have your choice. But well, yeah. yeah, there's a lot to pick from. <laughs> um, but I'm, I laughed out loud right at the top of the episode on this poignant moment where, you know, a boss is talking to the young Salver and they're having this interesting discussion and they, they name drop Earth and all that. And they're talking about, you know, what makes an enemy an enemy. And Abbas, to, almost to conclude the, the discussion, I don't remember the exact words, but it's something like past results are a guarantee of future performance. And I was wondering, why is he selling uh, mutual funds to his daughter? <laughs> and, and by using this deceptive language, is he going to get in trouble with the Galactic Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? I, I absolutely, as a, as a Wall Street guy, I absolutely spotted the identical moment. And I, I will tell you that he said that past um, behavior is the best predictor of future performance, which mm. 
you are allowed to say <laughs> okay <laughs> really <laughs> yes and that is that is a, a but i absolutely thought i'm 100 with you with the selling of mutual funds <laughs> starter what was he doing you're you're right that you you're not allowed to say that you're not allowed to guarantee results but you can say that past perform you have to say you have to say that past performance is no indicator of future performance. But you can also say that, for instance, when we look at things like inflation or, or other uh, indicators, that past results are the best indicator of future performance. But I thought I, I did I did spot that too. That was absolutely hilarious. To well, me. it's good to know that Abbas was on the right side of the law when selling <laughs> mutual funds to his daughter. The Imperial SEC has nothing on on Abbas. It was uh, it was a well statement <laughs> yes that was a great one and i mean the whole interaction of dawn with false dawn was uh i mean one thing that false dawn got was the arrogance he definitely he definitely got that yeah absolutely arrogant and uh, and that plan that just i just my mind just continues to boggle at the unworkability of that plan, that the that the resistance, you know, they they planned it for decades, and this was their plan. <laughs> Come on, guys, you can do better than that. And all in an episode where we really didn't get any Demersel, we really didn't get any Brother Day. Wow, just imagine if if we'd gotten some of our favorite characters in there, how great this episode would have been. Might have wanted it down, actually. It might have, it might have, but I think we're going to get them in episode ten. Oh yeah. I expect we're gonna go end up with a bang next week. Well, I hope so. Certainly hope so. Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform. You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com where there's always additional content. Our music, used by a Creative Commons license, is It Is Coming by Alex Mason. Also, follow us on Twitter, at Stars End Podcast. Goodbye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end.